0: Thank you, Stephen, Ashley. Um, Well, good evening. You would turn your Bible to Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15. It's good to be back on Sunday nights, and thank you for being here. It's always an encouragement to me, but it's encouragement to everyone when we gather, and it's a real means of grace, and I'm not sure anybody's ever gathered with the people of God and, and regretted it afterwards, even though there's a lot of afternoons, you, you think to yourself, maybe I shouldn't go tonight, I'm tired, uh, but you deny yourself and you come and, and it's a means of grace. Without fail, God knows what he's doing. Well, let's pray and let's get into our passage tonight. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. Uh, that indeed preaches, proclaims your glory, and we are able to see that glory even in the created order because as we have sung this evening, uh, you have revealed to us, you have answered the prayer of the songwriter, Be Thou My Vision. And Lord, you are our vision in your Son, Jesus Christ, and Lord, you have revealed Uh, yourself to us by the Spirit and through the Word of God. And we thank you for that tonight. And we pray that you would be our vision tonight, even as we make our way through Jeremiah 15. And we believe Jeremiah 15 is critical for our growth in godliness. And I pray that you would use me to show that. And I pray that it would strengthen our faith, hope, and love in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this past Monday, the Vatican, maybe you heard about this, issues a statement that faithful Roman Catholics cannot extend a blessing to same-sex relationships because God can't bless sin. I was proud of them for that. In response, CNN commentator Don Lemon, who is engaged to another man, said these words, the Catholic Church and many other churches really need to re-examine themselves and their teachings because that's not what God is about. God isn't about hindering people or even judging people. Well, these sentiments certainly fit the social imaginary of our culture. But as we've seen throughout Jeremiah, and every other book of the Bible for that matter, not only does God judge sin and sinners, if he didn't, it would divest him as God. It would divest him of his holiness and his righteousness, his justice. It would literally de-God God. And that is the message that Jeremiah preached And like today, that message wasn't popular even then. And it has brought, at this point, great complexity and pain to Jeremiah's life. The audience that he was called to preach to, Judah, they preferred the preachers, and we've seen this throughout the book of Jeremiah thus far, who preached peace, peace, when there was no peace and it was drawing a crowd, and it was costing Jeremiah to the point of struggling with disillusionment with his ministry. Now, every person in here, we have some pastors in here. um, Once a pastor, always a pastor, and we have some pastors in here who have pastored churches, but anyone in spiritual leadership can tell you that this is a real struggle at times disillusionment in ministry. He was struggling with that. He's also struggling with bitterness. We dealt with that this morning, didn't we? Resentment and self-pity. I think that's something all pastors uh, can resonate with. I think this will be a great chapter, by the way, for a chapel service, preaching or conference preaching to, to, chapter, uh, to, to pastors. Today, we come to what scholars call Jeremiah's confessions. Now, there's actually several chapters that you could call his confessions. Chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 20, and here in in chapter 15. Philip Ryken says a better word is a soliloquy. Now, this is a soliloquy of Jeremiah. What is a soliloquy? Well, it's a private speech which expresses the innermost feelings of a tragic um, figure. So in a um, soliloquy, no one else is on the stage. The main character is on the stage, and in this case, we know it to be Jeremiah. And what we're going to see, he is deeply discouraged, and I think chapter 15 is beneficial to everyone who is prone to discouragement, every believer, that is, who is prone to discouragement. And I certainly believe that includes those who are called to lead spiritually. And he's discouraged because he believes God has let him down. Have you ever been there where you believe God let you down? Well, that's where Jeremiah is In at least three ways. In the first way, God hasn't answered his prayer. At least not the way uh, Jeremiah envisioned. The the second way God has let him down, he has sent Jeremiah undeserved suffering. He's suffering by no fault or sin of his own. Of course, he does have sin. It's inward, not outward rebellion like the people he's ministering to. And then the third reason he is discouraged is that God did not seem to notice his obedience. He didn't reward him for his obedience. And this morning, I was reading in my devotional time in Psalm 73, and it reminded me of Jeremiah when the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 13, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He said, my obedience and my fidelity and my faithfulness and commitment to God has been all in vain. God hasn't noticed the wicked are prospering, and here I am suffering because of my obedience. Now, chapter four ended. 14 ended, we saw, with a remarkable prayer. Uh, let's just remind ourselves of that prayer. Verse 22, just see the end of that. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Remember, he's dealing there with famine, which was the first stage of the judgment that was coming that would end in exile. Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. And so he he confessed his nation's sins. He pleaded for God's mercy. And he pleaded for God's mercy for the sake of God's name. And so we would assume at this point, remember chapter 15 was added later in the original Jeremiah uh, book, you would go straight into chapter 15 and it's not chapter 15. So we would assume after that prayer, God is going to answer Jeremiah's powerful prayer. Well, notice in verse 1, what we're going to see in the verse 14 verses, Jeremiah's discouragement because God doesn't answer. His prayer, at least not the way that Jeremiah envisioned. Then the Lord said to me, "So that's coming off the heels of that prayer, a prayer that I would encourage you to memorize. It's a powerful prayer. Then the Lord said to me, "Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards his people." <laughs> Quite remarkable. Send them out of my sight and let them go. (coughs) It's almost like a reversal of the Exodus here. When he was telling Pharaoh, let my people go, and here, let them go out of my sight. Of course, he appeals here to two of the great intercessors. We we have looked at Exodus and we saw Moses' great intercessions, and we, we looked in Samuel and we saw Samuel's intercession. When Moses was up on Mount Horeb, for instance, to receive God's law, you remember what they were doing at the base of the mountain. They were building this golden calf, and they were worshiping, and God was about to strike them with his wrath. And what did Moses do? He interceded, and God relented. And then later, when uh, Israel did not want to go into the land, they wanted to stay in their little comfort zone, and, and God was saying, go into the land going to take a a mighty step of faith, but go into the land. And they refused. And and he was going to strike them dead and judge them and start over with Moses. And Moses interceded. Moses was one of the great intercessors. And then there was Samuel. When, When Israel was threatened by the Philistines in Mizpah, we remember that in 1 Samuel 7. And Samuel interceded on behalf of God's people and God moved because of his intercession or, or when they asked for a king like the other nations and God was ready to strike them with judgment and Samuel interceded. Samuel was one of the great intercessors. So Samuel and Moses had this remarkable track record of, of, of powerful intercession. And here God says to Jeremiah, even if Moses and Samuel We're praying along with you. I would not hear the prayer. Let them go out of my sight. And and so what is the benefit of this passage? God's not going to answer prayer in this particular case. Well, keep in mind, these words were not just written to the original audience who were already about to head into exile but these words were written for those coming out of exile. Uh, these words were written as a, a warning. Don't be like your, your forefathers. Don't be like your ancestors. These words were written to the 21st century church at Fisherville. And it's often been said, uh, a, spar- a smart person lear- learns from his own sins, but a wise person learns from the sins of others, right? Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things were written to us as an example. As an example. And that's one of the primary reasons for this. Well, notice in verse 2. And when they ask you, he says, where shall we go? And this is God speaking to Jeremiah. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for the sword to, To the sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. It's hard to come to terms exactly with what he's saying, but he seems to be saying, well, they're playing with judgment. They've been warned over and over again. They're not taking the warning seriously. And so the things that they seem to be embracing by their lack of repentance, let it happen to them. And the, threat, the, the threatened divine judgment that is here is echoed in Revelation chapter 6, which kind of summarizes half of Jeremiah. And it's notice death, the sword, pestilence, and captivity. In other words, the Lord is about to empty his arsenal on these people. Verse 3. I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord. The sword to kill, the dogs to tear, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And so not only they be killed, you're going to have these vultures come down on them and devour and destroy He's going to bring shame to the nation. They would would be complete outcasts. Notice in verse 4, And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Remember, they were to be a light to the kingdoms of the earth. They were to be a light to the nations. This was the calling given to them in the Abrahamic covenant. Remember when we looked at Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 15 and 17? Exodus 19, when God made covenant with them at at Mount Sinai, the the Sinai covenant, they were to be his treasured possession, and they were to be a royal priesthood, a light to the nations. And, And now, because of their sin, instead of a light to the nations, what are they? They are a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because, notice, of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, King of Judah did in Jerusalem. Now we need to park here for a moment because I think this hits on a a philosophy that's making its way in our culture that says that the present generation should pay for the sins of a previous generation. That is a prevalent idea in what is known as critical race theory. So Because one generation was oppressive, the next generation must pay repairs, okay? And and so they'll take texts like this and say, that is a biblical notion. Well, let's first of all talk about who Manasseh was, then we'll deal with that. Manasseh procured, secured, if you want to use that word loosely, a pseudo peace for Judah by compromising with the Assyrians. The Assyrians were a wicked people, and rather than trusting in the Lord for protection, he, he made alliances with the wicked Assyrians. And, and it was a pseudo peace. It, it looked like peace. It would have been like a, uh, a person with stage four cancer who's, who's, you know, killing their pain with painkillers. But there really is no peace there. In other words, he brought peace, but it came at a monumental cost because he opened Jerusalem to the worship of the false gods of the Assyrians. In fact, Manasseh, Manasseh this is, he's, he's an important king for you to know. He had the longest rule of any king in Judah. There were 20 kings in Judah, and he had the longest reign... Of those 20 kings and he's considered the most wicked now if you if you read about those kings man there's some there's the who's who of wickedness and so to say that Manasseh was the most wicked uh, he's in the Hall of Fame and he encouraged Baal worship and other false worship he He brought idols into the the uh, temple He sacrificed his own son on the altar, child sacrifice, which, by the way, is no different than abortion. It it, it seems so egregious that that, uh, these, these men would sacrifice their sons in keeping with pagan practice, but it's no different than if the baby has not yet been born. And he practiced sorcery and he consulted mediums. And though it is true that he encouraged idolatrous worship, and it is true here that he is saying that it's because of what Manasseh did in Jerusalem. We need to interpret Jeremiah with Jeremiah. This judgment was coming on them not because of Manasseh. Manasseh had introduced false and pagan worship to them, but they had embraced it, okay? In other words, it was coming not because of Manasseh's sins. The judgment was on them because of their sin. In other words, care has to be taken not to interpret text like this one to mean that one generation is punished for the sins of another, That's that's critical race theory. We may be affected by the sins of others. We certainly are, right? But each one is held individually responsible for his or her sins. Now, let me give you a text from Jeremiah. I could give you some from Ezekiel and other passages. Let me just give you one from Jeremiah since it's the same author. Jeremiah 31 verse 30, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. You can't get any clearer than that. Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Well, notice in verse 5, Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. Here he is reminding Jeremiah why he didn't answer his prayer. You keep going backward. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. It had been the history of Israel that the Lord had relented. And there comes a point where the Lord gets tired of relenting. Like a good parent. And he says, notice in verse 7, that he is going to toss them into the air like grain from a threshing floor. This is judgment language. In other words, the wages of sin is death. Verse 7, I have winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the land. I have bereaved them. I have destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I have made their widows more in number than the sand of the seas. I have brought against the mothers of young men a destroyer at noonday. I have made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. Seven being a representative of metaphorical language for the perfect family. Seven sons. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. She has been shamed and disgraced and the rest of them i will give to the sword before their enemies declares the lord so so many would die that widows would be more numerous than the sand of the sea now what's remarkable about that again i think it harkens back to the promise made to abraham that his his descendants would be as the sands of the sea this is a reversal of the promise In this case, the widows would be more in number than the sands of the sea. And this mother of the perfect family, seven sons, would lose her children and she would faint in that day. This is a promise of utter destruction. When judgment comes, and what have I said throughout the book of Jeremiah? As ghastly as these judgments are, they pale in comparison to the great final judgment. This is JV compared to the kind of judgment that awaits those who will not bow the knee to the living God. And so back to Jeremiah's unanswered prayer, I want us to consider a couple of of points here, a couple of lessons. First of all, God does not always answer prayer by giving people what they want. I mean, imagine a world where God was our genie. None of us would be sitting here right now, I can assure you. You you wouldn't be married to your partner. Uh, Your your spouse would probably not be sitting next to you if God answered all your prayers. It would be utter chaos. So I'm grateful, like the great theologian, Garth Brooks. Thank God for unanswered prayers. Amen? Amen. Sometimes it's because of the intercessor's sin. Sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because of our sin. Sometimes it's because of the people we're praying for's sins. And sometimes it's because God wants to magnify his worth in ways that go beyond the scope of our praying. He wants to magnify his worth in a way that would stagger our imaginations. In other words, his answers are better, gloriously better than anything we could have imagined to pray. The second lesson I want us to learn here is we need a better intercessor than Jeremiah. We need a better intercessor than Moses. Uh, We need a better intercessor than Samuel. God's not hearing them at this point. Indeed, we have one. We know that, right? The Old Testament intercessors, the great men and and women of God in the Old Testament, who interceded, even at their best, they were limited in what they could accomplish in prayer. We need someone not only who will intercede for us, but one to offer the perfect sacrifice for our sins. We need intercession and atonement. That's the whole point of Hebrews 7. We have a great high priest, an intercessor who not only offers himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, but he, he always, he lives to make intercession for us. And so all of these types in the Old Testament, and these are types in the sense they're, they're pointing us to, to the ultimate one to come, they all fall short. They all fall short. That's the point. That's the point. We need someone greater. But Jeremiah here is complaining about his unanswered prayer, and he needs to recognize that all he can do is point to the one who would come. But notice... He's going to transition in verse 10 and he's going to complain now about his undeserved suffering. Notice in verse 10, woe is me, my mother, that you bore me, a man of strife and and contention to the whole land. I have not lent nor have I borrowed, yet all of them curse me. Jeremiah's message was clearly in the best interest of Judah. Had it been heard, Judah would have averted, they would have avoided judgment. And yet that very message became the source of strife and contention that was aimed at the prophet. And there are several aspects here of Jeremiah's struggle. First of all, he's disappointed with his ministry. And every pastor here Everyone here who's been in spiritual leadership can absolutely resonate with this. He knew the Lord had appointed him to be a prophet before he was born. That's how the whole book began, chapter one, verse five. But with that, he is clearly frustrated because for all his faithfulness, he received strife and contention and hatred in return. In other words, ministry is not for the faint-hearted. It's not. And, and I, tell my, I tell my students that. I, I try to talk them out of ministry. Uh, because if you can talk them out of it, they never were called to it. I have a roommate, former roommate in college. And to this day, he blames me for not being in the ministry. And, and what happened on that fateful day, I was not a Christian. And so I walked into our apartment and he was reading his Bible. And, 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 and I said, What are you doing? He said, I'm reading my Bible. And I started laughing. That thought it was the funniest thing, that this guy was reading his Bible. Now, it wasn't funny. I thought, it was, looking back on it, as a Christian, it had been beautiful to see him. Uh, he said, I, th- I think God's calling me to the uh, ministry. And I started laughing even louder. And he said, that day when you laughed at me, I talked myself out of going into the ministry. I said, well, I, to this day, I tell him, I became your best friend. Because if someone can laugh at you and you walk away from the ministry, uh, you weren't called to the ministry. Because every pastor goes through dark Disillusionment and, and, and discouragement. And that's why later in chapter 20, he will say, he will curse the day he was born. Jeremiah will essentially say, I wish I had never been born. You see, when we allow, whether you're a spiritual leader or not, when we allow discouragement and disillusionment to control us, and I think all of us can, can say that has happened at times. We tend to not see any good anywhere. We can't see any grace. We can't see any signs of mercy when we allow discouragement and disillusionment to control us. All this can do is produce pessimism and criticism about everything. And that's where Jeremiah is. We're learning by his example and yet, even with that, the Lord is gracious in his response. I say gracious because you see uh, signs of his compassion to Jeremiah even as he continues to lay out his plan of judgment. He says, the Lord said, have I not, verse 11, have I not set you free for their good? I've preserved you, I've calped you. Yes, you've taken it on the chin, but I, I have given you the freedom to preach to these people. Have I not pleaded for you before the enemy in the time of trouble, in the time of distress? It's hard to say what the Lord is saying there unless he raised up those to defend Jeremiah's cause. But can one break iron, iron from the north and bronze? That's speaking of Babylon that's coming. Babylon from the north who will ransack Judah in just a few years. It's horrifying to think about. Imagine, we we more than ever in our lives can imagine something like that because of the wickedness in our culture. But it's coming here. Verse 13, your wealth and your treasures I will give as a spoil without pride for all your sins throughout all your territory. He's reminding Jeremiah again why he is not relenting. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. That's Babylon. For in my anger... A fire is kindled that shall burn forever. And again, let me remind us, if you have a problem with God's judgment, the problem is not with God's judgment. The problem is with our low view of God. Keep that in mind. If you have a problem with the Lord's anger being kindled on sin, the problem is with you. The reality is we ask for that all the time when we see the really bad guys, don't we? But in light of the holiness of God, all of us are bad. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. The Lord's anger is the hope of the world. It's The hope of the world. And so this is actually hope as he is addressing the evil and the wickedness in the culture. But this is more, from Jeremiah's perspective, this is more than a a vengeful or bitter spirit. He's asking for just vengeance. He he needed God's protection. Um, and, And you see this in verse 15. Oh, Lord, you know, remember me and visit me And take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake, I bear reproach. So there seems to be some self-pity. Because even as God is bringing judgment on these people, Jeremiah feels like he's receiving judgment for preaching the message of judgment. God... Did not seem to notice, in other words. And and that brings us to verse 16. In verses 16 to 18, Jeremiah is going to essentially say, You don't reward my obedience. Verse 16, your words were found and I ate them. Unlike the people I'm ministering to who do not love the word of God, I ate your word. And your words became to me a joy. He's reciting to the Lord his merits. And the delight of my heart. Your word was the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. So like Ezekiel, he he devoured the word of God. It was his joy. It was the, his delight. This is the one text in Jeremiah that speaks about his joy ministry. It's the one text right here. And he's reminding uh, the Lord that, that there was a time that he had real joy. Furthermore... He reminds the Lord, unlike all of these other people who claimed to be people of God, but they were carousers, I never was like that. Notice in verse 17. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. The party animals, if you will. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. This echoes Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. In fact, the second part of verse 17 here indicates that all the carousing, the revelers as he calls them, among the people of God, it gave him righteous anger, indignation. Jeremiah knew that there are some things you need to give up to follow God. Not talking about being legalistic or moralistic or are being stricter than God, but there, he had lived a life of self-denial because there's a price to pay for spiritual leadership. Sometimes a spiritual leader can't take part in things that the normal believer can take part in. And it may be, it, there may be the price of loneliness that comes with that, misunderstanding or our isolation uh, from human associations. But, but Jeremiah had two title law of retribution. Kind of like Job's friends. Job's friends were thought: where if you go through something bad, then then evidently God is angry with you, because He always blesses obedience and He always judges disobedience immediately. He believed he had earned the right not to have to endure so much pain. And, and I would say every one of us as believers has felt that. Uh, you you know friends, you have loved ones, you have family that seem to prosper. And they no more love God than anything. And here you live a life that is committed to God and his purposes, and perhaps you don't see your life prospering like theirs, or perhaps you have to endure suffering that you feel like you do not deserve. That's where Jeremiah is. Verse 18, why is my pain unceasing? I just reminded you about my character, my commitments. My convictions, why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Now, this is remarkable language here. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? Now, Jeremiah had wept before. He's been weeping throughout this book. So, for instance, earlier in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he grieved, but it was on behalf of the people. So, chapter 9, verse 1, we looked at this several several months ago. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He was, he was weeping on behalf of the people of God, but now... These are the tears of self-pity. And this self-pity has caused him to turn in on himself. It does it 100% of the time. When you begin to engage in self-pity, you become the most self-absorbed, selfish human on the planet. And so as Jeremiah here is seeking to understand his pain, he was led to a mistaken conclusion. And, And we often are. God had deceived him. That's what he means in verse 18. Notice what he says. You've become to me like a deceitful brook. You're like a mirage in the desert. Uh, I I thought you were a brook that I could drink from, um, but your, your waters have failed me. That's the language Jeremiah is using. He had forgotten what God had told him at the very beginning of his ministry. All the way back in Jeremiah 1, listen to this. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Jeremiah 1 at the very beginning of his ministry in verse 17, chapter 1. He says, I, behold, I will make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. The Lord is telling Jeremiah there, it's going to be tough, but I'm going to... Give you grace to persevere and resist, and, it's, and, and I'm going to sustain you. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. So he had forgotten what the Lord told him at the beginning of the ministry. They're going to fight against you. So Jeremiah should have not been surprised here. But because he had forgotten that promise, he, he ironically uses this language of, of a deceptive brook. That a, a, a spring of water that fails. Now earlier in chapter two, remember this. That was one of my favorite passages in Jeremiah. Jeremiah had written, "These people have for, have committed two errors. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have home for themselves broken cisterns that hold no water." Jeremiah two, as Jeremiah is reflecting on the person of God. The The promises of God, he calls him the fountain of living waters. And here in his self-pity, what does he say? You're a deceitful brook, like waters that fail. Our our disappointment and our discouragements and our self-pity are ultimately a reflection of our problem, not with anyone else, but God. Jeremiah has a problem with God. That is clearly The case here. He says, you are like a mirage. You appear real, but you aren't good at quenching anyone's thirst. He is accusing God of being a failure. He felt the Lord was letting him down. Have You ever felt that way? But he was wrong. The Lord never lets us down. We may have expectations not formed by the Lord, and those expectations may not be met, but the Lord never lets us down. In those cases where we have unmet expectations, the problem is not with God. The problem is with us. And that's the issue with Jeremiah. and Hence, verse 19, a rebuke from the Lord. By the way, when the Lord rebukes his people, it's a grace. It's kind of like, and I've told my sons this in sports, and I know this to be the case in my own life in sports. Don, I'm sure you would agree with this. As long as a coach is chewing you out, you got a chance. When they stop chewing you out and they stop even regarding you, you're destined for the bench at that point, all right? It's because they believe you can still make a player that they chew you out. Well, the Lord's not chewing him out, but he does rebuke him, which means the Lord is not done with Jeremiah. All right? So we see the rebuke in chapter nine, uh, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He's already said, let them go. Uh, they, they are past you know, relenting. But if you return, I'll restore you. Now, Jeremiah is not committing their heinous sins, but Jeremiah has an attitude problem, right? Which You know what this tells us? Self-pity is a sin. Disillusionment with God is a sin. And he graciously says to Jeremiah, if you return, I want you to notice there's a word that's found over a 1,050 times in the Old Testament. And you would spell it S-U-B in English. You would pronounce it Shuv, And you see it four times in one verse, verse 19. If you return, I will restore you. Same word. And you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth and they shall turn, there's the word, to you, but you shall not turn to them. So There's a, a deliberate irony here that he would use this word four times because it's the same word that the Jeremiah had repeatedly used to appeal to Judah to return to the Lord, especially if you look in chapters thir- 3 and 4. And now the Lord is turning and he's using that language with Jeremiah, and it would not have been lost on Jeremiah. The Lord was going to restore his prophet, and every pastor has those seasons he has to be restored, doesn't he? A lot of Monday mornings, when you agree with that, Eric, <laughs> we have to be restored, and sometimes. He restores us not by telling us he's going to deal with all those people. He restores us by dealing with us and our attitude. But there was a condition. And, and the, the condition was this. Jeremiah had to renew his commitment to the Word of God. Now, in one sense, it appears that he's, still, he's always been committed to the Word of God, but he's starting to question his calling. You know, I've been preaching judgment and... and, and Instead of seeing fruit in my ministry, all I'm seeing is judgment back at me. And so God says to him, I will restore you, but you have to recommit yourself to the Word of God. Now, where is that? You see that in verse 19. And let me just say this. This is one of the clearest statements on the role of the Word of God in a, mistress, in a minister's calling in all of scripture. It's at the end of verse 19. He says. If you utter what is precious. And not what is worthless. You shall be as my mouth. What is he saying? He is saying. If you will faithfully proclaim my word. It will be as if I was standing. Before the people. Instead of you Jeremiah. It, it reminds me of 1 Peter 1 in verses 23 and 25. Listen to this. All, he says, You were born again, not of the perishable seed, but the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. And get this, verse 25 and this word is the good news that was preached to you. When a preacher faithfully preaches the word, it is the word of God. Jeremiah said, God tells Jeremiah, if you will utter what is precious, and what is precious? God's word. If You will be faithful to deliver to them what I have delivered to you You shall be as my mouth. When they hear you preach, they will hear Yahweh's voice. What a glorious promise to every preacher. Because every preacher, if they have any sense, they know how weak they are. And how finite and fallible they are. What they need is God to come to bear in their ministry that's what he's promising jeremiah but that's what he's promising everyone who proclaims the word of god faithfully you will be as my mouth and with that renewed commitment god promises to bless it notice verse 20 i will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze they will fight against you what does that remind you of chapter one we just read it didn't we He's taken him all the way back to the promises made, uh, let's just say, at his installation service, at, his, at, the, at the day that he was ordained for the Southern Baptist ministry. He says, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you. So Obviously, this does not mean that he'll be free of attack. In fact, he's promised they're going to fight against you, Jeremiah, you're going to be raked over the coals, but you will prevail. That's the language he's using. And the Lord promises that because he promises his presence, his salvation and deliverance. Notice in verse 21, I will deliver you. So verse 20, I am with you, that's his presence, to save you and deliver you. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. What more could you ask for in ministry? Hardened people need our ministry, but when you preach to hardened people, it will be costly to the minister. But here's what the Lord does, and I think this is an important point for all of us as we close. The Lord repeats the promises he made to Jeremiah in chapter 1. Now, why is that important to us? He's basically telling Jeremiah, you don't need a new promise from me. You don't need a new word from me. The old one still stands. The old promise has today's date stamped on it. You just need to believe what I've already promised. One of your issues, Jeremiah, is that you have promise amnesia. And that's our problem too. We develop promise amnesia. And I think this is such an important lesson for us as we close out here about the Lord's, we're living in a time of vaccinations and things. These promises that you see throughout the scripture that we know are centrally fulfilled in the God-man, the person of Jesus Christ, They serve as either a vaccination or an antibiotic for all discouragement and disillusionment for every believer and certainly for those in ministry. Uh, They serve as an antibiotic for those of us who already have it, already discouraged, already disillusioned, already self-pitying. It's a great antibiotic, the promises of God. And you don't need book 67 of promises. We've got 66 books of promises. But they also serve as a vaccination. As you reflect on and meditate upon the promises of God, it's the promise-driven life. It guards you from the disillusionment, the discouragements that come from ministry and life in this fallen and broken world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that indeed we have the promises that are ours in Jesus Christ, as Paul would say in Romans 8, if you were for us who can be against us, you who did not spare your own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more will you in him freely give us all things? And we thank you that you did deliver him up for us all because we deserve the judgment that Israel received. We deserve all of that judgment and more. And you brought a substitute to take the judgment for us. And now, having raised the substitute from judgment in full bodily historical resurrection and having exalted him to your right hand, we have the promise that... If we are in Christ, we have sonship and we have an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. Father, I pray that this message indeed would encourage the discouraged tonight. And I pray that it would be a guard, a protection against those who are prone to discouragement, self-pity, and disillusionment. We thank you, Lord, that as great a prophet as Jeremiah was, he points to an even greater prophet who came and who intercedes not just as our prophet but as our priest. A prophet who reveals your will to us for salvation and a priest who ever lives to make intercession for us and he's able to save to the utmost, not only because he intercedes, but because he died to sin, as we saw this morning, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. We ask these things in the name of this prophet, in the name of this priest, indeed, in the name of this king, Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed this evening.